This is Victoria, producer for The Felon File, a podcast on law enforcement history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains of the United States and beyond. Listen to in 39 countries around the world. Scott Lunsford hosts The Felon File. Scott is a retired American police sergeant. Background and intro music through purpleplanet.com. Welcome back to another episode of Felon File, and thank you, Victoria, for opening us up and running the control board for us. We're coming to you again from the Scratch Ankle International Podcasting Studio in Western North Carolina. Can't miss us. We're west of Asheville, east of Canton, and make a left at the light. And I am your host, Scott Lunsford. Retired law enforcement, detective, sergeant, uh, school resource officer, wearer of many hats. And apparently the individual who doesn't know the meaning of the word retirement. But here I am with you guys. And we're going to talk about something that might be of interest. uh, Or at least make you stop and think a little bit. And of course, that is Thanksgiving. It is that time of year again. A time of turkey and family get-togethers. Thanksgiving is the time when many of us take the time to gather with our family and friends to feast, give thanks, and celebrate. Right? Thanksgiving goes back to many years in the United States. It is a United States custom. 1789, President George Washington declares November 26th to be officially recognized as a day of thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many and singular favors of God Almighty, unquote. Now, Thanksgiving wasn't always what we think of as today. Like most things, it has evolved over time to the situation the country's in and what's going on around the world. Now, in the 1800s, Thanksgiving was really more like Halloween. Poor people would knock on doors to ask anything for Thanksgiving, and hopefully some people would give them some food or money or whatever to help them out a little bit. Well, soon rich kids started getting dressed up in rags and going around to mock, and it ended up being known as Ragamuffin Day. Up until the Great Depression, people were so poor that anything for Thanksgiving was always answered with a no. Now, during World War I, the holiday was slightly different. It had turned into very similar to what we know of today. On the home front, people were encouraged, though, to cut back on food items such as sugar, meat, wheat, and other food products that could be sent overseas to help with the fighting. Newspapers printed alternative recipes, ideas that cut back on food consumption, and other items like the sugar and fat and oil. In his Thanksgiving proclamation of 1916, Woodrow Wilson reminded Americans of the problems and the issues that were going on in Europe, saying, 
And I also urge and suggest our duty in this day of peace and abundance to think in deep sympathy of the stricken peoples of the world upon whom the curse and terror of war has so piteously fallen and to contribute out of our abundant means to the relief of their suffering, our people could in no better way show their real attitude towards the present struggle of the nations than by contributing out of their abundance to the relief of the suffering that the war has brought. Big words. And a lot of truth to that even today. 1944, World War II going on. Millions of American men and women were serving in the armed forces domestically and overseas, leaving a lot of empty spaces at a lot of holiday tables. In cities near military bases, some of the empty chairs ended up being filled by servicemen and women who were invited to come in and share the holiday meal with uh, a local family, which they did, and new friendships were made. A good thing. Other traditions had changed as well. During World War II, of course, no Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, which hadn't happened since 1941. The float or the material for the floats, and they used the floats back then in 1940. They sent that material the rubber and latex to the war effort. In World War II, it was very similar to World War I. You had to make do at home with less. But the war wasn't the only conflict and issue. There was, there was an argument over just when Thanksgiving was. Because of federal legislation passed in 1941 saying that Thanksgiving was to be celebrated on the fourth Thursday rather than the last Thursday of November. In 44, the majority of Americans celebrated Thanksgiving on the 23rd. A few states held out on the older custom and celebrated the holiday on the 30th. Now, after all, what is Thanksgiving without some sort of disagreement between family and friends? A survey that was done a few years ago found that 68% of individuals that were surveyed and polled expected, quote, trouble during their Thanksgiving assemblage. Thanksgiving also holds the top spot for death in the United States. Last year, almost 600 individuals were shot over Thanksgiving, and that doesn't include the countless stabbings and beatings and other things that went unreported. There are the run-of-the-mills, the assaults and spikes in domestic violence, which increases usually about 20% during Thanksgiving week. With nearly 50 million people traveling by car, you also have to keep in mind car accidents. The National Safety Council states there are more car-related deaths on Thanksgiving Day than any other day of the year. And partly, they mark this up due to intoxicated drivers on the road, even more so than on New Year's Eve. And that brings us to our Shade of Blue stories for today. It's a collection of stories, really. For example, at a November 26, 2016 Thanksgiving gathering by a family in Knoxville, Tennessee, 28-year-old Joe 
Michael Gray Jr. visited his parents and his sisters at the parents' house there in Knoxville that they'd recently decided or had a contract to sell. The Thanksgiving meal went well, and the sisters ended up returning home. But Joel stayed behind with anonymous reason. He attacked his parents with a knife that evening. He stabbed his 61-year-old father at least 42 times, and his mother at least 31 times. He dismembered the bodies and attempted to dissolve the body parts and chemicals before scattering their remains around the house. His activity was discovered by police during a welfare check. Well, he wasn't from Knoxville, Tennessee. Instead, he was from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So that brought the FBI guys into the picture. The FBI, Knox County Sheriff's Department, and the East Baton Rouge Sheriff's Department, they kind of put Mr. Guy Jr. under surveillance, finally making a, a, getting enough to arrest him on Tuesday the 29th. He was arrested in his vehicle where a search incident to arrest located a meat grinder in the trunk that was confiscated as evidence. Uh, Guy Jr. pled not guilty when he was charged, but ended up filing a motion with the court that he be given the death penalty if he's convicted. Hedging his bets, I guess. His defense counsel team presented no evidence on his behalf at the trial. In four days in court, he was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Joel Michael Gray is having his Thanksgiving dinner this year at the Northwest Correctional Complex in Tiptonville, Tennessee. Now, going back a few more years, uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut. Jimmy Mulligan was walking to his friend's with the traditional makings of a Thanksgiving dinner uh, to share with his friends. An armed man approached him, came up from behind, and demanded the turkey and the stuffing and a bag of other holiday treats he had. And, oh yeah, he, he took his wallet too. Doing so all at gunpoint. Making it after he was robbed, he did make it to his destination where he called 911. The police dispatcher at first thought it was kind of a joke, somebody calling in, but officers were sent out to investigate, and the arriving officers determined, yeah, it was a turkey robbery. Dispatcher Denny Vieira felt so bad for the man that she decided to help him out, and she and her co-workers ended up buying two turkey dinners from the Boston market and had them delivered by a police escort to Mr. Mulligan. The armed escort made it through this time with the important turkey dinner, and the same was delivered with much fanfare. Thanksgiving Day 2013. Johnny Anton Love, which is... A really great name for a Thanksgiving Day robber. Johnny Love. Mr. Love attempted to rob a gas station in Miami Gardens, Florida. Now the clerk, David Lamore, who's calm and collected, 
they kind of befriended the robber in a way, told him, you know, you really ought to get you some beer while you're here. I mean, you're going to take, you can take it anyway. You've got the gun. After all, it's Thanksgiving. Well, Johnny Love agreed and helped himself to the liquid refreshment, bagging up as much cans of beer as he could take and carry. Meanwhile, David, the clerk, quietly triggered a silent alarm. Now, Love had grabbed so much beer on his way out the door, the bags broke open, scattering the cans across the parking lot, which, of course, Love, like any person would, went out to pick them up. It's my beer now. I'm outside the store. When the police arrived, Love was busy trying to pick up the beer and hide the money in his clothes. And, of course, he was arrested. Hopefully, Johnny Love was able to be booked and processed fast enough on Thanksgiving to still receive his Thanksgiving dinner on the customary jail cafeteria tray and maybe even catch a bit of the game on TV. We can always hope. Without question, Thanksgiving dinner can be a time of family stress. But how far do you go before allowing yourself to be emotionally hijacked by that stress? Well, 27-year-old Shanika Alzup of Annapolis, Maryland, was in an argument at the table with her half-brother, 23-year-old Dante Wallace. Slowly getting angry at the disagreement, she finally came to a head and grabbed the traditional two-pronged turkey serving fork and stabbed it into her half-brother's neck. Police responded and found Wallace in the parking lot of an apartment building, clutching his neck and wearing a bloody white t-shirt. Wallace ended up having two bleeding wounds from the fork on the base of his neck, and further investigation found blood stains inside the nearby apartment where he said it had happened. Wallace was transported to an emergency medical center with non-life-threatening injuries, and his half-sister was arrested and charged with first-degree assault, second-degree assault, and reckless endangerment. She was held on a $1 million bond, according to the police reports, although they don't say whether either one of them were able to finish their Thanksgiving dinner. I guess we'll never know. The next two Shades of Blue story are a bit on the creepy side, so keep that in mind while listening, as well as being aware of who's listening with you. This might be a bit much for some of our younger listeners, and we really don't want to give anyone sharing your podcast with you any ideas, if you know what I mean. Gilbert Vale was an NYPD officer who was arrested in... 2012 because of disturbing pictures his wife found on his computer. Further investigation showed he had also composed a list of women he had been stalking and had a diary written out on how he often fantasized about cooking and eating them. It went so far that in one online chat room he boasted that that Thanksgiving, he was going to have girl meat for Thanksgiving. Well, he ended up being charged and, of course, fired from the police department. But in spite of these lists, the creepy online conversations, he was convicted but on appeal 
a New York judge overturned his conviction. His ruling was that the former officer was just fantasizing. There isn't a law about that, at least not yet. He was released from prison in 2014 after serving almost two years of active time. After being released, he returned to live at home with his mother, who, according to the newspapers, promised to, quote, cater to his every need. God bless mothers everywhere. Our last shade of blue story is about a young lady and her own unusual, if not very creepy, Thanksgiving holiday in 1991. Omaya Nelson was born in Egypt in 1968 and grew up in Cairo. As a child, Nelson would claim she had been subjected to abuse and female genitalia mutilation, which was actually documented in exams later. Intercourse, she testified, was traumatic and painful for her, claiming that this was doubled by the assaults and rough intimate activities that she sometimes alleged to have sustained during her marriage. Now, in 1986, at 18 years old, like I said, she immigrated to the United States working as a nanny and a model in California. Prosecutors later said she had a habit of hooking up with the older guys, the older sugar daddy type men, and used them to help pay her bills. She met her husband, Bill Nelson, in 1991 at a bar playing pool. After knowing each other for just a few days, the two ended up getting married. Bill was 56. 33 years older than his new wife. Now, Bill used to be a pilot, but in 1984, he was convicted of smuggling marijuana. After serving a four-year prison sentence in a federal prison, he was released on parole, and he got a job with a mortgage company. The couple spent their honeymoon visiting Bill's relatives in Texas and Arkansas, but the honeymoon phase apparently didn't last that long. Our bride said that once they were married, Bill started showing a very violent side, physically and sexually abusing her during their one-month marriage. According to Nelson, on Thanksgiving weekend in 1991, Bill sexually assaulted her in their Costa Mesa, California apartment, claimed he had tried to rape her and then strangle her. She had grabbed a lamp and hit him with it in self-defense, she said, before stabbing him with a pair of scissors several times and killing him. Okay, somewhat understandable self-defense, probably. But that's not where it ended. Nelson ended up cutting up her deceased husband into smaller bits, I guess making it easier to manage. Boiling his head and cooking his hands in oil. It was also reported that she had castrated him in revenge for the assault. If I didn't defend my life, I would have been dead. I'm sorry it happened, but I'm glad I lived. She would say later on, adding, I'm sorry I dismembered him. You know, kind of lost my head. <laughs> Slight joke. Oh, well, that makes it okay, I guess. Well, she did apologize, right? In a court report, a 
psychiatrist testified that she had put on red shoes, a red hat, and red lipstick before she took her husband apart in little pieces. Yeah. The psychiatrist also testified that uh, she had initially told him that she had eaten her husband's ribs, but later denied it. Nelson reportedly stated also during the interview that after preparing Bill Nelson's ribs with barbecue sauce, like in a restaurant, she explained, it was very sweet and very good. Now, don't forget it's Thanksgiving Day 1991. She butchered his body, fried his hands in oil, cooked his head, and mixed his remains with a leftover turkey. She disposed of a good portion of the small parts, what she could get in the garbage disposal, then wrapped the leftovers, your pardon the expression, in newspaper and placed that in trash bags. Then she drove to a friend's house and showed her the trash bag she had stuffed in the back of Bill's in the back of Bill's red 1975 Corvette. She allegedly offered the friend uh, $75,000 to help her get rid of the body. After all, that were, that's what friends are for, right? No, not really, not this time. The friend immediately, while she was still there, reported what had happened to the police. Police quickly arrived and began examining the bag from the car that Nelson had been driving and as she watched quietly. The body was so completely dismembered that the officers couldn't immediately identify the remains or at first tell who they were or even if they were human or not. The next morning, Bill was reported missing after he didn't show up for work following the Thanksgiving holiday. Police searched the Nelson's apartment and found more bags containing body parts. The Orange County Senior Deputy District Attorney, a Ralph Paleski, was there during the search. His statement was, quote, There were suitcases and plastic bags soaked with dark liquid from his body parts. In the fry cooker, there sat Mr. Nelson's hands. And when we opened the refrigerator, there was Mr. Nelson's head staring back at us with stab wounds in it. She had his entrails all over inside of his Corvette, and she was trying to get an ex-boyfriend to yank out his dentures from the head so she could dump it in the back bay close by. However, much of Mr. Nelson's body was actually still missing. During the trial, the district attorney described it as about 130 pounds unaccounted for. A cause of death couldn't actually be determined due to the body's condition. In December of 1992, the trial for Nelson's murder began. And there was no dispute really that she had killed him. Her attorney, a public defender, uh, Mr. Mooney, argued that she acted in self-defense. Of course, it's really all he had. He also said that she had been involved in other abusive relationships and was suffering from battered wife syndrome or battered woman syndrome. That this all took a psychological toll on her leading up to the November 1991 killing. A psychological evaluation did show that she suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. She was convicted of second-degree murder on January 
1993 and was sentenced to 27 years to life in prison. Eligible for parole first in 2006, but was denied when commissioners found her, quote, a serious threat to public safety. You think? She again became eligible in 2011, but was denied by the parole board again, citing that she had not taken the responsibility for the murder. The Los Angeles Times reported that her parole hearing, she had stated she was now a changed person who had looked for love in all the wrong places, but now she said, I have a strong desire to help others. And she can get a job in a food kitchen. Nelson also denied eating her husband. I swear to God, I did not eat any part of him, she uh, stated to the parole board. I am not a monster. Well, uh, of course, she's going to be still eating Thanksgiving dinner behind bars up until 2026 when she comes up for parole again. And we'll just have to wait and see what happens then. In the meantime, I hope you guys enjoy your Thanksgiving dinner. Remember, if you have the opportunity, be nice to somebody. Do something good. It's really the right thing to do. And also remember to be safe and be secure. Look us up on the internet. Or drop us online by email. Felonfile at gmail.com We'd love to hear from you. And try to get back to you as quick as we can. If you have any suggestions, comments, or ideas for possible future stories, let us know. We'd love to hear them. In the meantime, enjoy your Thanksgiving turkey. Bye, y'all. Victoria, I'm sending it back to you. This has been The Felon File, a discussion on law enforcement, history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and other parts of the world. For more information, you can go to felonfile.com or scottlunsfordauthor.com. Here you can find links to Scott and Num books and other information. You can also email us at felonfile at gmail.com. There are also t-shirts and mugs available. You can also buy us a cup of coffee, or help purchase some of the research material and expenses it takes to do felonfile. Click on the coffee image on the web page to do so. This is Victoria your producer thank you for listening. Have a good one.